Hello, I'm John Warner, and here we are again in another mini lockdown. Wherever you're listening from, wherever you're at in your thinking about God or your relationship with God, welcome. It's good to have you listening or watching. This is the fourth talk in a series called Grace Fully Celebrating. The first three talks are available to listen via the Trinity Church Mount Barker website. Luke chapter 16, it's a continuation of Jesus' teaching from Luke chapter 15, all about God's beautiful grace. Luke 16, it's like a parable sandwich with some filling in the middle. And the first story that we're going to be looking at this now is all about a good listener, being a good listener. Well, let me pray for us as I begin. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, the Bible. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in the Bible so we can know you and enjoy you now and in eternity. Thank you that you've given us ears to hear. Please help us to hear what it is you would have to say to us and please change us. We pray this for our good and your glory. Amen. Well, let's begin by reading Luke chapter 16 verses 1 to 18. Jesus told his disciples, There was a man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. And so he called him in and asked him, What's this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know. When I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors and he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 400. Then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? If you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Well, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. 
It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Well, what did you hear? I want to begin by telling you about a movie called The Big Short. It's based on Michael Lewis's non-fiction bestseller, The Big Short, Inside the Doomsday Machine. It tells the what and the why and the who behind the 2007 housing market collapse in America, a collapse that led to the global financial crisis. Were you impacted? We had a newly retired missionary couple turn up at Trinity Church Brighton in 2007 and they had lost half of their savings. Now while the movie reveals some of the head-shaking greed and corruption, its main storyline is to chronicle the work of hedge fund manager Michael Burry. Burry recognises that the US housing market of the early 21st century is a bubble that is inflated so high by high-risk loans that it's about to go bang! In 2005, Burry, the manager of Sion Capital, began to short or bet on the collapse of the US housing market. He didn't do it with his own money though, but with his clients' money. However, his clients find out what he's doing with their money and they're not happy. You see, the banks and the creditors, they're continuing to argue that the housing market is very stable uh, and in fact it keeps on surging. Burry's clients grow more and more agitated. Burry places more of their money placing bets. When they demand their money back, Burry prevents them from getting to their money, but he also becomes unavailable to his clients. Of course, history records the US housing market did default spectacularly in 2007, and Burry returned $5 billion to his investors. That's a 500% return on their $1 billion. Their anger quickly turned to backslapping praise for Burry overnight. See, Michael Burry was a student of history. He listened well to what people were saying and investors were doing. He realised the conditions, the conditions, the evidence was everywhere. And see, he saw the future before anyone else. Based on the data, he even predicted the quarter that the housing market would default. You see, Burry bet his reputation, his freedom, his whole future with all his clients' money on what he was hearing. Burry not only saw the future, he had the self-preserving wisdom and courage to act. Michael Burry, he's, he's like this business manager in this first parable in Luke 16 that Jesus told. See, what might Jesus be saying to us as we near the end of one of the most extraordinary years in our lifetime? Well, so far. Well, first some context. Uh, the year's about AD 29, and Jesus is nearly three years into his public ministry. He's teaching people all about the importance of being good listeners when it comes to their future. Good listeners when it comes to their future. Now, within earshot are leaders and lawyers who are in positions of privilege and power, and they are grumpy with Jesus. This man receives sinners and eats with them, we read at the start of Luke chapter 15. But there's a second group within earshot of Jesus, uh, the, the sort of the, the sinners, the irreligious and the, the scurrilous rank and file. And they're loving the way Jesus is welcoming them and giving it to the religious establishment. But we're told 
that it's Jesus' Christian followers that he is especially teaching in Luke chapter 16. Did you pick that up in the first sentence of Luke chapter 16? And Jesus said to his disciples, and Jesus also said to his disciples, which I suspect is probably most of us listening now who identify with Jesus. Well, this first story Jesus tells, it's, it's about a good listener who responds wisely in light of the future he heard was coming. Now, we picked the story up there in that first sentence, that there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. A manager who was accused of wasting his boss's possessions. See, the picture is here is of a well-thought-of large landowner in the Mount Barker region. And he's got numerous sub-tenants or farmers subletting his land. Some are renting his land to grow olive trees, some to plant crops of wheat, others are leasing land to grow vineyards, others almond trees. See, in Jesus' day, rent was paid with produce, like a percentage of your olive oil or grain or wine or almonds that you harvested. This well-thought-of landowner has appointed a business manager to oversee the um, the day-to-day runnings and finances of his property. But for a while now, we're told that this estate owner, he's, well, he's heard that there are some serious charges from his workers about this manager wasting his money, wasting his money. Now, might have been big lunches, extravagant business trips, maybe golf membership, um, family holiday. Look, we're actually not told exactly what the charges are, but we get the idea, don't we? We read in, in verses 2 and 3, so he called his manager in and asked him, what's this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. But there's no response from the manager. Did you see there's no excuses that he gives to justify? No explanation, there's no blaming of others, no attempt to try and even keep his job really. There's just silence. And it's one of those guilty silences, isn't it? See, the manager knows he's guilty, and he knows that his boss knows that he's guilty as charged, doesn't he? He said, yep, you got me. Now, we've all lived long enough to know this feeling, haven't we? Who of us hasn't um, stuffed up or intentionally done something? Who of us hasn't at some point found ourselves sitting or standing in front of a boss, a spouse, a parent, a child, a coach, a teacher, a friend, the police even? Guilty and culpable. See, the manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My boss is taking away my job. Well, rather than leave his future to fate or chance, this manager decides to use the little time remaining to fight for the future he wants. He uses the time that the boss gives him to fight for the future he wants. Now, we're doing this all the time, aren't we? Fighting for the futures that we want for ourselves, for uh, for our families. See, this fired manager, he's clear about where he doesn't want to end up. It's there in sentence three, when he says, The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. 
And so he makes the most of whatever time left to make friends who will welcome him in the future. Friends who welcome him in the future. So he's very focused and he's urgent, isn't he? And so he calls in each one of his master's debtors. The first guy, he cuts his bill in half. Bang! 800 to 400 gallons of olive oil. Now that's three years' salary that he's just knocked off the price. He's just getting warmed up though, isn't he? Verse 7, we're told that he, he asked the second, How much do you owe my boss? A thousand bushels of wheat. He replied, Take your bill, make it 800. Now that's eight to ten years' salary that he's just slashed off the debt. Just imagine, you walk into your bank manager, um, you know, to, to pay off more of your mortgage, and he says, look, I'm cutting your mortgage in half. It just doesn't happen, does it? And it's not going to happen. I mean, you can't do it without the, the bank's authority. You see, it helps us understand that some things are sort of clear here in Jesus' parable, and some things aren't. What is clear is that this guy has heard his boss clearly and he's seen two futures, hasn't he? There's one future that he doesn't want and one that he does. And so he's used the remaining time of his position as manager to use more of his owner's resources in order to secure his preferred future. To secure his preferred future. Now, of course, the shock here is his boss's response, isn't it? Because his master likes what he sees. It's there in sentence 8, isn't it? The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. He commends the dishonest manager because he would acted shrewdly or wisely. Now what's Jesus praising here exactly? Well, Jesus is not praising the man's dishonesty. That's never praised in Scripture. Now the rest of verse 8 makes that clear. The master, however, is praising the dishonest manager's shrewdness, his, his self-preserving wisdom, his cunning, his shrewdness. He's commending his wisdom and courage to do what he needed to do in order to avoid ruin and to preserve a place for himself in the future. See, like Michael Burrow in The Big Short, this manager in the parable has seen the future clearly because he heard his boss clearly and he's acted accordingly. And that's shrewd, says Jesus. That's wise, says Jesus. Now, Jesus doesn't leave us wondering what he's teaching here because he tells us the point of the story in what he says after that, doesn't he? There in, in sentences 8 and 9 where he says that... The Michael Burrys of this world, they're more shrewd, more wiser in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light, that is Christians. I tell you, says Jesus, use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now that's code for heaven. What's Jesus teaching you and I? as we make our Christmas purchases and we begin to make our plans for 2021 and beyond, although who knows what's going to happen next year. Well, let's just dig a little bit deeper back into this parable and the context. You see, in the parable, Jesus is God, the Master. He's come in person to hold the appointed managers of his Old Testament people, Israel, to account. 
And that's the Pharisees and the leaders and the teachers of the law here. And Jesus is saying that, guys, time's up. You've got limited time to turn things around and be part of God's new future. Uh, your time is now. Turn it around now. And that's the point. They still have time to receive Jesus and to receive God's forgiveness. Time to join Jesus and his mission to seek and save lost people and bring them home to God. And of course, that's what Jesus has been teaching in Luke chapter 14 and Luke chapter 15 as well, isn't it? It raises a question for us though, doesn't it? You see, how have these guys been mismanaging God's resources? I mean, what is it that gets God God's angry and says, guys, you know, turn it around now? Well, that brings us, brings us to what Jesus says next. You see, it's there in verse 10. Verse 10. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? If you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? See, if I lend you my lawnmower and you use it and you give it back and it's battered and broken, I'm probably not about to lend you my car or something more valuable, am I? See, Israel's leaders, they had been given a trust by God. Uh, They'd been trusted to teach God's word to his Old Testament people. But to keep that word for themselves, uh, to be like a light of justice and mercy to the surrounding nations so that people would want to come and join them and God's people. Uh, as they see just how good it is being a part of God's people, trusting and obeying God's grace-filled word for their lives. Now here's the thing, outwardly Israel's leaders, they looked on fire for God, you know, regularly turning up at synagogue or or church, they prayed in publicly, they'd openly give large amounts of money, Uh, they're able to recite large chunks of the Bible. But what does Jesus say? Jesus says, God knows your hearts, God knows your hearts. Verse 13, no one can serve two masters, either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's impossible, says Jesus. The Pharisees who loved money, they heard all this and they were sneering at Jesus. Jesus says to them what he says to us. You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. See, Jesus sees straight through their outward show, their hypocrisy. He, he knows their first love. And their first love wasn't God and his honour. See, can we hear what Jesus is saying then and say now? He's not saying give all your money to church. He's not saying we can somehow buy our way into heaven. You know, we, we all know you can't buy love and acceptance from anyone, let alone God. It's got to be given. Jesus is simply saying what we all know to be true. That what or who we most love, who and what we are living for, it's seen in our daily choices, like how we spend our time and who with and and what we spend our money on. See, I can tell you till I'm blue in the face that, you know, I love my family. But if I choose to never spend time with them, never spend money caring for them, you'll quickly work out that my love's pretty superficial and perhaps false for them. 
See, the relationship or relationships that matter most to us, they're going to be the relationships or relationship that, that control us, that control our time, that control our use of money and, and, and our future. See, rather than using their privileged position and power and financial resources to, to help people, to have mercy on them, they become self-service, self-service. More than this, they've been doing gymnastics with God's Word in the Bible, downplaying or even changing the bits in the Bible to suit their own personal desires, to sort of keep in touch with the times and to be relevant and to be liked, to be liked. Does that sound familiar? You see, these self-serving managers were more concerned about their own reputation and honour than God's reputation and honour. And that's why Jesus says what he says when he says that it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of my word to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he or she, he, he who marries another woman, I should say, another divorced woman who's divorced from her husband, commits adultery. You see, here's Jesus reminding his people then and his people now of just how highly God values marriage. Now, while there is always forgiveness for those who repent and turn to Jesus, even the divorced, the point Jesus is making here is not God's anger at divorced people, but his anger at people who delete or change God's words in the Bible to suit their own ends and misrepresent God and say, oh, God thinks divorce is okay. You see, I'm sure none of us like being misrepresented by others. Well, how much worse does Jesus and God like being misrepresented? And so, as we finish, let's just tease out the point of this first parable for us. The first thing to notice is that the time that the dishonest manager is given by the new owner, that he isn't arrested, he isn't jailed, he isn't told to pay back the landowner, is he? The manager isn't walked off the property straight away. I mean, how surprising is that, that he allows them to stay unsupervised? Well, if the first act of the landowner in the parable um, is just astounding mercy, how astounding is the second act of mercy and grace from the landowner? You see, this dishonest manager has recklessly wasted his master's money, not once, but twice, and even more so the second time around. Then he has the audacity to walk into his master's office and, and show him the, the accounts uh, or the discounts that he's given his boss's renters. Now, surely he deserves jail now. But no, the master forgives him his debt and then commends him for his self-preserving wisdom. Can we see that it's the manager's first experience of his master's mercy that has emboldened him to use his master's resources a second time to secure his future. The manager has done it, knowing that his master is extravagantly, recklessly merciful and full of grace. See, this story is another subversive story about God's extravagant grace in Jesus. Think back to Luke 15. Both the younger son in Luke 15 and the stealing steward here in Luke 16, they both waste the property uh, resources of, of the father and the boss. The son in Luke 15 experiences extravagant mercy from his father. The steward here in 16 experiences astounding mercy from his master. 
The son is not jailed or punished for wasting his family's assets on wild living, but he's forgiven his debt and restored as a son with celebration. So also the dishonest manager is not jailed or punished for changing the bills of the renters to get in their favour, but is instead commended by the master. So I think the question Jesus is asking his followers then and now is how are we responding to God's undeserved extravagant forgiveness in Jesus that guarantees you and I a future with Jesus in heaven? Have we done, are we doing a Michael Burry and putting our futures all on Jesus? Are we doing a Michael Burry and, and said to Jesus, I'm all yours and everything I have, it's all yours, Jesus. See, how are we going making friends by means of our unrighteous wealth, that is our money, our assets, so that when you die and it fails, that you might be welcomed into God's eternal dwellings by lost and found people that your wealth has helped save? I don't know how 2020 is going to finish for you. Uh, I mean, how did 2019 finish for you? Sadly, uh, for some, they started 2019 with everything, only to finish the year with a fire taking it all. And sadly, for too many, they started 2020 with everything, only to finish the year with a virus taking it all. Perhaps you were affected or you know people who have been affected by the fires or by the virus this year. See, our powerlessness in the face of such devastating fires and viruses, they remind us of just how fragile our lives and livelihoods are, how impotent we are. The, the things we spend our lifetime building, you know, um, they've sort of got the look and the feel of permanence, don't they? Yet along comes a virus, a fire, a stock market crash, a, a global financial crisis, a takeover at your company. Uh, suddenly our savings, our job or our house, a, a whole farm, it's gone. Our earthly treasures having failed us again. That we're all busy building our bodies or building our families, our homes, our farms, our estates, our careers, our, our qualifications, our resumation, uh, making reputation for ourselves maybe, you know, building our superannuation, our share portfolio. It goes without saying they're all good gifts from a good and generous God uh, to be uh, stewarded wisely with thanksgiving to God. But if life is more than a marathon than a sprint, then we know it's not how you start a race, but how you're going to finish that matters. What is the finish line you're going to run towards in 2021? What's the future that we will invest in and risk it all for? Will we learn from the Michael Burries of this world, uh, from the shrewd managers of Luke 16, to live courageously in response to God's grace, to be shrewd like this manager and, and start using even more of our worldly wealth that God's given you and I to help make lost and found friends so that they're waiting for us when we turn up to heaven. Perhaps it's giving more generously to the mission of your local church. Perhaps it's giving to support ministry trainees. Perhaps it's partnering with your local Bible college who are training pastors or, or partnering with, with missionaries, uh, with, with CMS or, or some other missions organisation. I mean, what a thrill to turn up to heaven and be welcomed by people you've never met 
but they're there because of our sacrificial, generous, financial giving that meant they heard the gospel, believed and were saved from death to life. I mean, what a thrill to be welcomed by Jesus and hear him say, well done, you made friends for yourselves by means of your worldly wealth. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Well done. Let me pray for us. Merciful Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this beautiful word of grace to help us understand the second chances that you give us all. That as long as there's breath in our lungs, we still have time to turn it around, to come to Jesus, to throw ourselves on your mercy, to surrender all that we are and all that we have to Jesus. There's still time to know the joy of, of joining with Jesus and his mission to seek and to save lost people and bring them home to God. Oh, Father, help us to know more of this joy. The joy of giving sacrificially and generously, of partnering with you in taking this beautiful good news of your Son to a world that more than ever needs to hear the resurrection hope that we have in Jesus. We pray this for your glory, for our salvation and for our joy in Jesus' precious name. Amen.